community gardens are associated with social empowerment, with reducing food insecurity, creating urban green spaces, and for providing opportunities to interact with others while learning about food and food production skills. While examples of successful gardening initiatives are plentiful within the sustainable food and community development movements, we tend to hear less about how this model can be adapted for organizational settings until now. Sherry Pinero, a certified diabetes educator and registered dietitian and recent graduate of the Masters in Sustainable Food Systems program at Green Mountain College, has created an innovative new concept, a hospital-based edible educational garden framed around nutrition and culinary programs. I think you'll agree after listening, this model provides a unique opportunity for healthcare organizations to improve health outcome metrics, providing a socially responsible health educational model that supports environmental nutrition dietary recommendations. We'll talk to Sherry today about her final capstone project titled A Guide to Planning, Developing, and Implementing an Experiential, Organic, and Sustainable Hospital-Based Edible Garden Culinary and Nutrition Program. It's an impressive, comprehensive, step-by-step -step guide that can help inform stakeholders interested in exploring a hands-on educational program. The guide focuses on organic and sustainable gardening principles as an evidence-based learning model using experiential kinesthetic formats to improve the transfer of knowledge and to improve health outcomes. What she has created is a guide tailored for the healthcare sector, providing clear and easy to follow program development guidelines and resources to stakeholders who are ready to deliver an innovative approach to healthcare. Welcome to The Capstone, a new podcast celebrating the creation of a more just and sustainable food system. I'm your host, Lisa Trochia. For those of you who have been listening, you'll know that in this series, I've been talking to graduates in the Sustainable Food Systems program at Prescott College about their final capstone projects. In our last episode, I talked about our decision to include recent graduates from Green Mountain College on the program. So if you missed that, please download and listen to that story. There's a strong connection between these two schools, truly the continuity of excellence. So with Green Mountain College now officially closed as of the end of the academic year in 2019, we're happy to create some space on this program for folks in that last cohort of graduate students in the Sustainable Food Systems Master's Program. Well, I understand the healthcare model and know that there is a missed opportunity. There's no program that exists at the moment like this guide. Uh, in my research and speaking to people within organizations that uh, are familiar with garden programs at hospitals, none have these sort of three pieces, the culinary nutrition and gardening piece in an experiential format. So there's definitely a missing, uh, missed opportunity there. I'm pleased to welcome Sherry Pinero to the podcast today. It was my great pleasure to get to know Sherry as both a student and a capstone advisee. As I mentioned earlier, Sherry is a highly experienced healthcare professional. She is a certified diabetes educator and registered dietitian. She's worked in clinical nutrition, community outreach, and in sales and marketing. For the last nine years, Sherry has worked at Kaiser Permanente in health education, preventative medicine 
where she facilitates classes on diabetes, lifestyle weight management, heart health, plant-based nutrition interventions in classrooms, and through cooking programs, but also develops innovative curriculum to help patients learn about the food system. As part of her role at Kaiser, she works with children with diabetes and their families in the pediatric endocrinology clinic and also serves as Riverside Regional Diabetes Committee Chair, assisting in the development of a lifestyle-based weight management program offered to Kaiser Permanente patients throughout Southern California. She is currently the spokesperson for the California Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and webinar program assistant for the Hunger and Environmental Nutrition Academy of Nutrition Group. Shiri also has a private practice that focuses on developing innovative environmental nutrition and planetary health programs for the healthcare model. This includes creating experiential learning opportunities for patients and communities to help them understand and utilize garden foods, local food systems, and culinary explorations to create positive impacts on their health and the health of the planet. Hi, Sherry. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Lisa. Nice to hear from you. Yeah, nice to talk with you. I'm so pleased yeah. to have you on the program. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for asking me to join you and being part of this new series that you have. It's a, a wonderful idea. Well, thanks. Well, we're really glad to have you and to be able to shine some light on the great work that you're doing. Um, I always like to begin by exploring the idea of bioregions with people. So you're on the West Coast in a very different bioregion from me here in Appalachia. Um, and because students and teachers are always located in different geographic spaces while they're in the Master's in Sustainable Food Systems program, um, I really enjoy hearing, especially now in retrospect for you, um, how you've come to understand and define your bioregion. Yeah, you know, when I had the bioregional theory class with you, which is really set the foundation for all of our other classes because it really helped us look at the history of our own area and in deep into the history not not just you know how we got here but also the soil the fauna the floor and so many aspects that we don't really think about when we live in a place um, i do live in southern california and i grew up in southern california and i have definitely developed a bioregional awareness and a deep appreciation for where i live especially since again learning about that history so i find myself really observing and the plants and the wildlife from a really a whole new perspective you know i feel the soil and the ground covering under my feet more with pride and i notice how the insects and the birds interact with nature and understand their roles are just as important as ours in creating a diverse biosystem that's I used an to awesome response. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's funny, like I used to fear bees. <laughs> ah, yeah. Um, and now I get excited to see one in my backyard. In fact, I had one in my pool that fell in and I and I rescued it. It was still alive. And I dried <laughs> off its wings and gently made oh. you know, sure that it was able to fly away. But you know, in the past I probably would have just scooped it up and tossed it in the bushes. So oh. it's kind of one of those things where you start to really develop a, an appreciation for our, our ecosystem and it makes you cherish these things even more. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's wonderful. Know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've had droughts in California, as you know, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure right. in other parts of the of the country, and that's you know really affected our the area around here in in people's landscapes. And you know, I live near a lot of agriculture, and people have had to cut down some of their fruit trees, and it's really compromised their livelihood. Uh, and you know, it's it's made a difference in cost of food for for consumers too, because uh, because there's not as much of that production. 
Right. So, so you're yeah. really aware of those interactions too between, you know, as you said, people and place and flora and mm -hmm. fauna and how that all makes a difference. Yep. So, yeah, that's a that's a great course. I wish everyone could take it. <laughs> oh no, I know. It was it was a really great course. I loved it. <laughs> so let's get to that capstone. So um, you know, clearly your experience in the healthcare field directly relates to your capstone project. So was the but I, I'm curious if there was any one experience or a set of insights that helped you to know that an edible education, educational garden would be a valuable topic for you to focus on? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say it was a single experience. It was really just the culmination of interactions, being a dietitian with consumers and people and, you know, and patients over the years. Uh, and so that combined really with the knowledge I gained in the sustainable food system you know, program as a graduate student really brought my attention to what was lacking in nutrition education and really the traditional model of nutrition education and what we call medical nutrition therapy, where we would be prescribed, a doctor would prescribe a diet and the dietitian would then teach that patient a diet to treat a condition, really mm -hmm. focused mostly on calories and nutrients to define what is, was healthy and not really looking at the environmental nutrition piece, the conservation of nutrition in, in, our, in our food system and being conservative and um, looking at, you know, where that food was sourced and was it socially and economically sourced responsibly and environmentally grown responsibly in a way that doesn't, um, you know, produce more disease uh, in the system with the chemicals that are being used. So the shift uh, for me was now incorporating, you know, the traditional model with the environmental nutrition model, bringing that two together to form and create a, a program that in, in a healthcare setting that would make sense, right? We don't want to treat disease, but then also create disease. So, uh, so it's really bridging those two pieces and creating a program that, um, that, supports a sustainable food system, but then also supports, uh, you know, a local food system and teaching mm -hmm. people gardening practices within their own home environment and how to make better shopping decisions when they're not able to grow that food so that they can also support a healthier system as well. Right. So that, that big picture view, that complex food systems view um, really came to bear on your project, sounds like. Yes. So one of the things that there's, there's starting to be a shift in the healthcare industry on plant-based eating and recommendations by physicians to treat disease more so than as a solution to, to climate change. So you're seeing physicians re, uh, recommending plant-based eating to treat heart disease, to treat diabetes, to treat inflammation of various sorts in the body. But they're not necessarily doing it as a treatment or as a solution to the change in our climate, which, which, okay, well, I can see, well, they maybe haven't connected those dots necessarily. I'm not saying mm -hmm. all physicians and all healthcare providers, but I, I would say just in general, they're not seeing it from that lens per se. Um, it's not taught in medical school or even in dietetics programs to up and coming dietitians. Um, you know, you've got ag policies that are promoting animal products, which kind of contradicts really the U.S. dietary guidelines, emphasis more towards uneven plant-based foods. Um, so you've got very, very little federal subsidies going towards fruit and vegetables. Um, environmental nutrition is more of that holistic approach to planetary and human health. So, you know, we're, if we can start to see that as a, as a very vital um, tool to, to not only teach patients, but 
communities that that can make a huge difference on on just the health of the planet and humans. Yeah, so um, this clearly in preparation for your capstone project, you identified some of these topics, some comes from your experience, some came from your research, but things that you definitely wanted to include in the toolkit. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how you came to some of the conclusions about what to include. Well, kind of given what I've experienced as a dietitian, I, I kind of th- I had to think about, well, in the capacity for which I work in an environment that I've known for nearly 20 years, what would, what could I potentially do? Me being, what can I do? And then what can I do and what can others do that also have that similar role? And how can hospitals and health healthcare, you know, create this this environment where consumers are helping to make better food choices. And so, you know, the the audience that I'm targeting for this guide is administrators, physicians, healthcare providers. So they needed evidence-based research. They want to see why do I want to implement a a program like this? Uh, Not only am I talking about food sustainability, but also the delivery of care model is much different than what's typically used in a hospital setting, which is more didactic forms of teaching. And this is more uh, my guide encourages and emphasizes more of an experiential model where people are actually going into the garden and growing the food and then harvesting it, learning about sustainable and organic gardening principles, harvesting the food and bringing it in and cooking it as a shared experience. Uh, and then learning about the nutrition piece. Um, So it kind of incorporates those three tiers in this model. Yeah, and so this guide is really hands-on, and it includes exercises and opportunities to really actively engage with a process. So one example, um, are there, there are various tools that you provide to help folks analyze, say, like the pros and cons of whether the program should be, actually be managed under the for-profit or non-profit structure. So, you know, these are the kinds of details that only someone with your level experience could have brought to a, a guidebook like this. So I'm, I'm curious about... Um, knowing how, um, you know, your experience within the system helped you to craft a toolkit that could bring value to these kinds of processes? Well, I understand the healthcare model and know that there is a missed opportunity. There's no program that exists at the moment like this guide. Uh, In my research and speaking to people within organizations that Uh, are familiar with garden programs at hospitals, none have these sort of three pieces, the culinary nutrition and gardening piece in an experiential format. So there's definitely a missing, uh, missed opportunity there. So along with helping healthcare facilities create the program from the ground up, there's resources to help hospitals create the garden and program layout plan ideas. So there's, uh, there's layouts, there's actually, and I'll get to this when later in the podcast, uh, my facility where I work at is, is building a new location and, and is going to be actually implementing this program. And so oh, there's, 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 plans that have been made and where this garden piece will be and where this um, culinary nutrition education is going to happen. And so there's planned ideas. There's a list of typical resources needed to create a culinary uh, nutrition program to help in the planning. There's details on how to create a sustainable organic garden, which Grace has really, uh, really helped quite a bit with my capstone on making sure that, you know, did it apply to a, a garden situation versus a large scale farm, right? So we really wanted to condense it down. Okay, what within a garden 
uh, how do we make that sustainable? And, you know, there are no GMO seeds available to consumers, which I, I guess didn't really realize until right. she mentioned that because you, you think there would be, but, and because a lot of the seeds say and, and non-GMO. And so you're assuming, well, if these little seed packets say that there must be some that have are genetically modified, but, um, but, but even though you can't necessarily purchase those for home purchase, doesn't mean necessarily that people aren't still spraying pesticides on their organic seeds, right? Or, or, or growing their garden in a sustainable way where they're composting and so forth. So, you know, there's this whole piece in there about the um, putting together and what is a sustainable organic garden. There's, yeah. co there's cost guides in there so that if a hospital wants to implement it, there's, you know, a breakdown of what would those costs look like? What would you need to uh, budget for a program like this? Sourcing guides for nutrient-rich organic heirloom fruits and vegetables. So I really emphasize using uh, organic heirloom fruits and vegetables that may be much higher in antioxidant value and nutrient value that are maybe more rare cultivars and varieties of things that you don't necessarily see in the supermarkets. So you're teaching people that, you know, there's a more, you know, we want more diversity in our garden. Uh, and so there's research on plant-based diets, GMOs, agricultural chemicals, and really its impacts on human and planetary health and, uh, and curriculum included as well. Well, I'm glad you referenced Grace because uh, we will talk with Grace Gershuni, who um, later in the in the podcast, who served as one of your advisors for the project. And you know, Grace is an author and an educator, well known for her expertise on organic uh, food production and soil health. So uh, maybe we can uh, take a deeper dive into some of those uh, those things you were talking about relative to um, your interest in um, using non-GMO seeds for the garden and why that was important to you. Um, but, you know, you're really pointing out the ways this project is comprehensive, but also um, its complexity and the food system is complex. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit how you see all of these interrelationships between the various parts of the food system coming together in a project like yours. Uh, I see really the interrelationships coming together as I connect a person's food system, whether local or globally, to the impacts on their health and the health of the planet, which ultimately affects human health too. Uh, food can make you sick or it can keep you healthy. So hospitals treat the sick, so it makes sense to offer programs at hospitals that support health and prevent disease. Um, one of the things that when I was reading through my research with physicians in general, they and e any healthcare provider that's advocating a change in their diet, a patient's diet, um, you know, should also be the one that's following those same maybe dietary principles. So for example, physicians, you know, there's research that physicians own healthy personal practices on his or her clinical prevention related practices. You know, that, that affects the patient's uh, looking at that doctor for credible advice. Mm -hmm. So physicians' healthy dietary practices positively affect their clinical nutrition counseling attitudes and practices. Uh, and so it makes a huge difference that if, if whoever's giving that nutrition advice also practices kind of what they're preaching, basically. Yep, and makes and it <laughs> makes sense, right? I mean, yeah. when you go, and I hear from, from patients a lot of times, they'll say, oh yeah, my doctor says I'm overweight, I need to lose weight, but they're, they're obese. The doctor mm -hmm. themselves are obese. And so it's really hard to, uh, to sort of, you got to motivate 
people, but then also really be advocates for that as well to, to make that important for patients to see that it's important and that they have somebody to look up to as a mentor for that. So capstone design and writing can be a pretty serious focused endeavor, as I'm sure you'll bear witness to. Yes. Hopefully you had some fun or you made some interesting discoveries in the process of writing your capstone. And I wonder if you could tell us just a little story about that. Well, for me, I was focusing on who my customer segment for the guide was. And once the program was implemented, who the customer segment would be, who would be participating. So I really had to look at it from two different lenses. A, okay, who is this guide going to, whose hands will this fall into? It would be stakeholders, healthcare administrators, physicians, and maybe other healthcare professionals. So, So that would be one customer segment that I had to really look at and create this guide for. But then once that guide was created, the other customer segment being who's going to participate in this program. Mm -hmm. And so I really had to look at it from those two different lenses. What would they want to know before implementing this program? What's the cost effectiveness? What's the return on investment, the evidence-based research, the staffing needs, the site program needs. And so the process in creating this this guide, you know, in this capstone process was really a lengthy, it, what it took maybe a year and a half, probably from the time we started this mm-hmm. uh, journey until the end to really gather all this information and figure out how is this going to be, how is this going to be written in what format, how much information is going to be in there? What's the purpose of it? It is written like a workbook. So people can use this at their planning meetings and really customize it to what they need. So you mentioned earlier, uh, the nonprofit versus profit side. Well, the guide is set up to either fall in either path because hospitals are either a nonprofit or a for-profit or may have both. Like where I work, there is two parts to our uh, healthcare uh, organization, Kaiser Permanente, has a for-profit side and a nonprofit side. So determining, okay, what part, which which side would we want this program to be run on and what would the pros and cons of that be? So it's really, hopefully, when a, when a customer segment or a stakeholder looks at this guide, they're able to use it and and apply it in any situation that they can and really build it from the ground up with every resource that's available in there. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, I do have my own practice now where they can also reach out to me as guidance and counsel as well. Well, you know, you referenced that uh, it may be in the works for this to actually materialize as a project. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. So my um, Kaiser Permanente, which is a health maintenance organization, uh, there are several throughout the United States. You are in Vermont, did you say? I'm in Ohio and Grace is in Vermont. Ohio, okay. So we do have a Kaiser in Ohio. I don't know if you're... Uh, n- uh, nothing near me, but I used to live in San Francisco and my son was go. born in, at a Kaiser Permanente. Oh, hospital, wow. So yeah. We had a wonderful experience. Well, yeah, and so Kaiser's pretty advanced with with... I would say, you know, especially even where I am in, in the county of Riverside, which, you know, we're not LA, we're not, we're not San Francisco, but we are 
you know, definitely more, I would say, progressive in terms of our dietary approaches. We have mm-hmm. our own teaching kitchen. We have, uh, we really, the, the doctors are very pro plant-based um, diets. Not only do they advocate, but they live uh, that way as well. And so Kaiser is interested in implementing this, this in adapting this program at a Great. new construction site because of how really, um, you know, how important they see it being. And Kaiser does have a sustainability initiative where 100% of their food that they source uh, is going to be either local and or sustainable by the year 2024. That's their goal. So they're, they're definitely big advocates of sustainability. So the garden has been approved for and is in the plans, uh, which I've seen which will be built in the next year or two. So they've approved it. They've approved a portable demonstration kitchen. And so we're really, it's really, hopefully, you know, it's still in the planning stages, but it's, you know, they, they'll involve me as we get closer to the build out. But by then I'll have several teaching curriculums developed to present to the stakeholders. I'm just very thankful that the organization really sees value in the program and is supportive of the mission and, and you know, in, in helping the community around us and the patients we serve and their families so that uh, they can learn not just, you know, what, what to eat sitting in a classroom, but how, how do I do this for my family? Well, that's terrifically exciting. It's really good news and, and uh, congratulations on getting that far <laughs> in the process. So we'll, we'll look forward to hearing more as time goes on and maybe we'll have you back on and report out how things are going eventually. Yeah, that would be awesome. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure at this point to bring in Sherry's other advisor on the project, Grace Gershuni. Having served in the 1990s on the staff of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's National Organic Program, Grace has worked for many years as an educator, organizer, and market gardener, and is widely acknowledged as an important voice in the alternative agriculture movement. She has authored and co-authored several books concerned with soil health and composting, and her most recent, titled Organic Revolutionary a memoir of the movement for real food, planetary healing, and human liberation, is published by Black Rose Books and in its third revised and expanded edition. Grace was on the faculty of the MSFS program at Green Mountain College from its inception until it closed, teaching the theory and practice of sustainable agriculture, and she also worked for several years as a graduate advisor at Prescott College, mentoring students in their studies in social ecology. She's currently on the faculty of the Institute for Social Ecology and lives in Vermont. So Grace, I know Sherry talked a little bit uh, earlier about her commitment to educating about GMOs in this capstone project. And um, I seem to remember some discussion between the two of you at the time about exactly how to message that. Because uh, as Sherry said, and as we know, much of the uh, GMO discourse relates to commodity crops and to industrial agriculture. So how did you two bring that conversation around to a smaller scale gardening initiative? Well, I think that one of the things that um, that helped was to understand that working on a on a garden scale, as Sherry has has said, is very different from working on a commercial scale where you have to market and fit into a distribution system that 
is not very friendly to uh, different kinds of uh, crops or crops that don't meet the parameters of the of the current system. So, um, as Sherry mentioned, you know, there's there's were at the time that we were working together no garden crops that were even available to um, to home gardeners and unfortunately <laughs> that's actually changed so ah, um, has it yeah and i think that those non-gmo pledges that many seed companies took was anticipatory of their becoming uh, varieties available to home gardeners, uh, such as um, sweet corn that has the Bacillus thuringiensis gene in it that will not require uh, spraying with um, the tried and true Bacillus thuringiensis uh, product that's a, that is acceptable for organic producers to use. Um, and also, I think uh, a, some varieties of summer squash that are resistant to a particular virus that is a problem for commercial growers, I guess, but really shouldn't be any issue at all for home gardeners who are taking good care of their soil and their biodiversity. Well, that was a really good call, Sherry, to kind of um, think about that, include that in your capstone, even though it was more visionary than than reality at the time. So way to go. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how things can change just in a, in a year, right? right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we have to always be aware because, you know, the food system changes so quickly and it's unfortunate that now you can buy corn that's GMO and, you know. Right. And, 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 and a lot of your concern as well, even went beyond that to just making sure, sure. that the gardens were um, non-chemical. Exactly. Exactly. So not just that, but you want to make sure there's no chemicals in a, in a, especially in a healthcare environment anywhere, really. But, you know, that just contradicts everything about being healthy. So Grace, coming back around to the project itself that, that Sherry's put forth, how do you see these kinds of creative and integrated gardening projects serving the broader goals? of a values-based food movement? Well, uh, this is a great example of not just a, a theoretical exploration and building on the scholarship, but actual uh, practical implementation of something um, filling a niche that, um, that really was not being addressed very well. I know there have been a lot of um, hospital garden projects and school garden projects and so forth but this one seems to be unique in in um, addressing the whole picture both the diet and nutrition aspects and the uh, health of the of the community aspects and the health of the 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 rest of the planetary ecosystem, which is fabulous. So I think that, um, Sherry, you deserve great congratulations, not just for thinking about these things and learning more about the nuances, but also bringing that information in a very specific, concrete way into your own work life and making a positive change there. 
Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, you know, you're, what you're really doing is championing this, uh, the idea of sustainable diets, um, in a way, because, um, you know, there are diets with that have low environmental impacts, and they definitely play a role in ensuring food and nutrition security. Um, and of course, you know, there are linkages between dietary diversity and agricultural diversity, right? Oh, definitely. Yes. yes, for sure. And, and, and other kinds of diversity as well, I might add. So yeah, relative to that idea of sustainable diets, um, I know you talked a little bit about the, about the plant-based, um, uh, the implications of plant-based diets relative to climate change. And that's a little bit of a can of worms. It's kind of a contested topic, but let's talk about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I'll go ahead and speak a little bit about it. I mean, just there is a lot of research out there and there's, there's definitely some folks that obviously, you know, there's research, right, from both ends of the spectrum. You're going right. to get research that's showing, yes, there's an issue with, with beef and a lot of the red meat products and farm crustaceans and cheese producing an average higher greenhouse gas emission impact and making more of an impact on our environment than potentially more of those plant-based foods, nuts and beans and tofu, but some animal foods, eggs, poultry, farm fish, you know, they have a lower environmental impact per, uh, and what they're looking at when they say environmental impact, it's uh, per 50 grams of protein, how much in kilograms of CO2 does that, does that mm -hmm. produce to produce that, that food product, let's say. So beef being the highest, nuts being the lowest. And which is why you see more of an emphasis on plant-based diets to, as part of a sustainable diet. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's, that's one big piece there. You know, the United States, the agriculture sector is estimated to contribute 6.4% of total greenhouse gas emissions, the majority coming from industrial livestock operations. And so right. there's a, so definitely a yeah. connection there. Yeah. I think that, uh, yeah, those, those the statistics are definitely out there. And I think some of the, the points that are contested come into play when the research is done based on um, agricultural, um, industrial agricultural models. Or what would yeah. you say about that, Grace? Right. Well, that's an important point. And uh, I don't think you'll find any disagreement in uh, the the regenerative agriculture community about the the travesty of industrial livestock production and its terrible impacts not just on greenhouse gas emissions but on soil quality water quality um, and food quality um, but um, there i think one of the things that is um, that I would generally caution about is to always be uh, examining critically any any information that you that you encounter, especially when it's supporting your own assumptions and your own preconceived ideas about uh, about these things. And I think that um, I know that in my work I've been looking at the importance of soil health, mm -hmm. especially soil health, not just in uh, in producing healthy food, which which we accept as a given for many many years, but at 
as a way to mitigate climate change. Right. Mm -hmm. And in that discussion, um, the we we understand, and even those among us who are committed to purely plant-based or even vegan diets understand that livestock and animals are essential to soil health. And so that's where the regenerative piece comes in. Um, the regenerative agriculture movement is, is going beyond organic, if you will, and focusing in on the restorative role of agriculture and that agriculture isn't just an unmitigated harm to uh, the climate and the environment and can actually bring about healing uh, when it's done using livestock in contact with soil as, as an important uh, and a very important tool. So a farm that includes livestock is extremely important to keeping the soil healthy, keeping the water cycles in good shape, and, uh, and eventually, um, as we get rid of the industrial confined animal feeding operations, uh, really restoring planetary health rather than harming it. And I think, you know, not being a dietitian, I'm not going to comment on the, the health aspects, but I think that there's a lot of evidence out there that, um, that animal products can be really, really important nutritionally, and that most populations of indigenous communities in the world have included some important component of animal products in their diets for millennia. Yeah, these are these are the the difficult um, dialogues that we need to have. And uh, these issues in food systems world are complex. They're wicked problems. There are no easy solutions. And, um, you know, there are uh, a, a lot of ways that we can expand our thinking and expand our practice. And um, the only way we do that is by having these conversations. So I appreciate that we were able to do a little bit of that on this program today. Um, so I thank you both. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, Sherry, we just were so thrilled to have you on today. This is a fabulous project, and um, I really wish you all the best moving forward um, and uh, continued good luck with the project. And we will hope perhaps to reconnect with you once things get going and hear more about how, uh, how this is working. And uh, Grace, great to talk to you again. And, Likewise, Lisa. Right. Okay. We'll talk to you all later. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Grace. Very thank welcome. Thank you, Sherry. And good luck with your project. It sounds fabulous. Yeah, thank you. I can't wait to see how it evolves and definitely would love to keep you guys posted and I'll let you know the progress of it. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on The Capstone, a new podcast celebrating the creation of a more just and sustainable food system. The Capstone is a project of the Master of Science in Sustainable Food Systems program at Prescott College, 
which supports the strengthening of communities and their members by helping people to rebuild healthy, just, and sustainable food systems. This program creates leaders with a deep knowledge of the economic, ecological, and social forces driving food systems from local to global scales, and engages students in a limited residency online format to build skills that can be applied in a personal and bioregional context. Currently, the program offers optional concentrations in sustainable diets and biodiversity, food justice, and food entrepreneurship. And Prescott has just introduced a new dual MBA MSFS degree. So for more information, contact prescott.edu. The podcast is produced by Prescott College. Audio production and original theme music by Chris Ridgway. I'm your host, Lisa Trochia.